0: The Lost Ballparks Podcast is on the air. Hello, everybody. This is Jack Buck with Carl Erskine at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri, from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Brought to you direct from Comiskey Park. So we have action at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, and there's always action here. Across the field in Cincinnati, Ohio. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Sunny day here at Tiger Stadium. The wind blowing straight in from right field. Well, no friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. Joe no Polo a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead, wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for two throughout the evening.
1: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Lost Ballparks Podcast, featuring New York Yankee legend, Bobby Richardson.
0: 3-2 pitch to Richardson, a swing and a five ball, well hit! One
1: more runs are in, and the Yankees lead 6 to Bobby Richardson enjoyed a 12-year major league career. He was the second baseman for the New York Yankees from 1955 to 1966. Selected to seven All-Star teams, played in seven World Series, a three-time world champion winning the series in 58, 61, and 62, World Series MVP in 1960, and a five-time Gold Glove winner. Bobby Richardson. Hey! <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this, Bobby. I really, really appreciate it. Glad
2: to. Uh, my wife sent me down to buy two tomatoes. We're having our pastor and his wife and a couple, uh, another couple over for lunch, and and I was down to Rustic Market, and I'm back home now. So. We have a little restaurant one of my ball players own, one block from my house, and we meet down there for coffee a couple mornings a week. And I was down there early this morning, about 6, and we have a little Romeo club, retired old men eating out, and we had a good time together.
1: Bobby, on June 12, 1953, the day you graduated from high school, you signed a contract with the New York Yankees for $4,000. A week after you signed your contract, you made your first trip to Yankee Stadium to work out with the team before a game against the visiting St. Louis Browns. One of the people you met at the stadium was equipment manager Pete Sheehy, who was in charge of the Yankees clubhouse all the way back to the days of Babe Ruth. Did By the way, didn't Pete introduce you to Casey Stengel?
2: It surely was. And uh, what a great friend he was. What a great clubhouse man. Everybody loved him, but he did. He introduced me to Casey, who was the manager at that time. And I was asked to work out for three days. And uh, Frank Corsetti also was there as a coach. And he said, I'm going to hit you some ground balls at shortstop. And he said, after you hit some ground balls, come into the batting cage and take some swings for the regulars. I feel those ground balls, but I wasn't about to step in front of Mattel or Yogi Berra in that batting cage. And finally Mattel came up to him and said, come on, kids, step in here and take some swings. And it started a friendship that lasted a lifetime.
1: To get to the field, you walked through the tunnel, through the Yankees' first base dugout, and up to the top of the steps. Take me through the moment you walked onto the field at Old Yankee Stadium.
2: Well, the thing I remember the most was that I was getting dressed. Big Pete he gave me the uniform, and I had my high school spikes for their broad, and I hadn't cleaned them. They were kind of dirty. And Frank Resetti was in the locker next door, and he said, Kid, he didn't know my name then, he said, uh, What size shoe do you wear? And I said, uh, Ten and a half. I think I said nine and a half because baseball shoes run a little smaller. He said, uh, I've got a pair here. I'll give you these. And and I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, and I didn't put them on. He said, well, you're going out on the field. Why don't you put them on? I said, on this carpet here, you put your cleats on? He said, yes, you do. <laughs> and I remember putting them on and walking out. And when I came through the tunnel, that wonderful, beautiful green grass you could see, and you could see the outline of the the big buildings in the outfield. And having come from Sumter where 10,000 was our population, and then all of a sudden the game started and there were just uh, numerous thousands of people there, even though we were playing the St. Louis Browns, I remember thinking, wow, it's going to be fun playing here in New York. And and, uh, that was my thoughts.
1: At the end of the 55 season, I think it was August 5th, 1955, You get called up, and the day you join the team, you're hitting second in the Yankees lineup, just before Mantle and Yogi Berra.
0: Bobby Richardson. Richardson takes a strike. Fastball, knee high, toward the outside part of the plate.
1: Did you have some nerves? Goosebumps? I don't know.
2: I did have goosebumps, and I didn't feel the ground ball. Nothing was hit my way the whole game. I just passed the ball around the infield. But I do remember that I was on base and I think I stole a base and, uh, I think it was Yogi hit a home run, and we won the game, and that was probably one of my biggest thrills, to be in Yankee Stadium, to walk in and realize that I was in the lineup with and Yogi and those guys, but I'll never forget that. In that short time up, the Yankees voted me a third share of the World Series, and had no idea, back home, bird hunting, and I remember I read in the sporting news that I had been given a a third share of the New York Yankees World Series, and what a thrill that was, because it picked up after that, In nine out of the first 10 years, the Yankees while I was there in
1: New York. Early on in the 1957 season, Billy Martin got traded to the Kansas City A's, and this opened up a slot for you at second. And the reason why he was traded is it's actually a pretty crazy story. I think one night at the Copacabana, Billy Martin, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, and Yogi Berra were running up quite a tab. I forget whose birthday they were celebrating. The tab ended up being several thousand dollars. They didn't have enough money to cover it, so Billy signed the Yankees owner's name, Dan Topping, on the bill.
2: You're exactly correct. It was two thousand dollars and they didn't have that amount of money and and Billy said, I'll take care of this and he signed Dan Topic's name and George Weiss was the main one. Casey Stingle loved Billy Martin. He was his type player and I remember that we were in Kansas City and uh, the team had come out. We were all on the bus except for Billy Martin and Casey Stingle. They were still inside, still talking and honestly stayed for an hour. And finally when he came out he sat down by me. There was an MCC. He said, Okay, kid, it's all yours. I've been traded to Kansas City. I realized then that he had been traded and that he was going to leave our club and and join the Kansas City ball club.
1: So that night, at the Copa Commander opened up the slot for you.
2: Well, it really did. And George Weiss kind of felt like that Billy was a, an influence on Mickey, that he was the one keeping him it late and getting him into a little trouble. And so it was George Weiss more than anybody, the general manager, who made that deal and traded him to Kansas City. And, of course, Billy later came back as a manager five different times. He was well-loved in New York and continued to be my friend. I've got a letter here in my office. I'm sitting in it now from Billy Martin. And he said, uh, I want you to know number one was the number we shared together because Big Pete Sheehy is the one that gives the numbers out. And he gave me number one. And Billy said, I want you to know that in old-timers games, you can wear that. Once a a number's retired, you're not supposed to wear it again. But he, because of that letter, uh, said I could wear it right on in old-timers games. I played my first old-timers game. I was 31, and very seldom missed an old-timers game all those years.
1: You made your first all-star appearance in 1957 at Bush Stadium, previously known as Sportsman's Park.
2: It's all-star game time.
0: Heated pennant races in the major leagues are interrupted once again for baseball's annual mid-season classic. It's the 24th meeting between the greatest stars of the American and National Leagues. And this time, the scene of the dream game is Bush Stadium in
2: St. Louis, the home of the Cardinals.
1: Here you are playing alongside Yogi, Mickey Mantle, Al Kaline, Ted Williams.
2: Well, these were names that my dad and I had talked about uh, in earlier years. He was a St. Louis Cardinal fan. We listened to the games on the radio at that time, and that was a little before television. Then when I got to New York and after that first year, Because of signing with a bubblegum company, I I got a TV and I did a two-year deal and got a color TV for my dad. And so he was able, not able to travel to see me play, but he was able to see all those Saturday games when Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese were broadcasting and enjoying those games on, on television. In
1: 1958, the Yankees finished with 92 wins and met the Milwaukee Braves in the World Series. The
0: 1958 World Series is being brought to you from Yankee Stadium in New York.
1: In that series, you start game four.
0: Bobby Richardson
1: at third base. And because your dad had battled emphysema for years, it was the only time, Bobby, other than I think an exhibition game, that he was able to see you play in a major league game in person. What did that mean to have your dad at that game?
2: Well, first of all, I can't believe how much you know. You know more about me than I know. He had emphysema. You're exactly right. Shortness of breath. And uh, I remember Warren Spahn was pitching, and I went 0 for 4, I think. And uh, I was actually played third base. Bobby Richardson, a fine
0: defensive player, is at third base. Very adept on picking up bunts.
2: Right before the game, Gil McDougall went up to Stingle and said, I just don't feel good at third base today. I feel like I'm too close to the hitter. Let me play second and let Bobby play. It doesn't matter where he, he plays. And I played third base. My dad was nervous because of that, and I was too. But once again, I didn't get a ball the whole game. My dad was a very quiet person that didn't miss an American Legion or a high school game. He'd sit corner by himself out in the left field bleachers and never once did every ace say anything critical about my play. He just encouraged me good games, about all he'd say. And his dream was for me to play in the major leagues. And he had been a good baseball player, but had to work. It was his dream as well as mine. And the Lord worked it out. And so he could see all those games on television. And during that time, I had some good years. He died in 63. But in 62, he was able to see a year that we won the pennant. Uh, we played the Giants in the World Series. We were world champions. I led the American League in hits that year with 209. And I just uh, I remember that the next year in the middle of the season, we got the call and he'd had a stroke. And I missed just one game flying home to be with him. And then uh, he died about six months later. And But uh, he got to see me play those three years. And uh, it was a fulfillment for him. He died at 67. Big influence in my life, yes.
1: And just to wrap up the 1958 season, obviously it was so special to have him at Game Four, and even with the Yankees trailing three to one, you would come back, face the Braves in Game Seven. From
0: County Stadium
1: in Milwaukee, Gillette presents the seventh and final game of the 1958 World Series between the New York Yankees and Milwaukee Braves. The Yankees were not going to lose this World Series. They beat the Braves six to two in Game Seven.
0: Here's the pitch. And there goes the ball to left center. Mantle moves in. He's got it. And there it is. The New York Yankees are the winners. And Bob Turley is mauled and congratulated by his teammates as he comes in to the dugout.
1: Another world championship for the New York Yankees and a historic one for Yogi Berra.
0: And Yogi, you've been uh, in 10 World Series, as many as Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio. Has there ever been one that gave you as great a thrill as this one? Well, I guess this one is. I guess the National League won't be so um, uh, smart now. They thought they had us down 3-1 and and we come back fighting. This is the best one I've ever been in.
1: No team since the 1925 Pirates had ever come back to win a World Series after trailing 3-1. All right, Bobby, I want to talk about 1959. It is a breakout year for you, and you end up hitting 301. But going into the last game of the season, I mean, there was some drama and some tension as to whether or not you'd be able to hang on and uh, stay over 300.
2: Going into the last day of the season, I was hitting 299, and Casey Stingle said, We don't have a single 300 hitter. If you can get a hit first time up, we'll take you out of the lineup, and the Yankees will have at least one 300 hitter. Billy O'Dell was pitching. He and I quail hunt together in South Carolina. He's from Newberry, South Carolina. And he said, word over. I'll be throwing it right in there for you. The third base was, uh, was Brooks Robinson. And he said, I'll be playing real deep if you want to bunt. And even the catcher, Joe Ginsburg, said, I'll tell you what's coming. And even the umpire first base, has Hurley, said, just make it close. Well, I had a line drive to right field. And my very best friend, Alvin Pearson, made a diving catch. He didn't get in on it. But I got two hits the next two times up, and uh, I was the only Yankee that year to hit 300.
1: What a way to wrap up the 1959 season. In 1960, the Yankees, with 97 wins, are right back in the World Series, this time facing the Pittsburgh Pirates.
0: From Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, this is Jack Quinlan, along with Chuck Thompson, welcoming you to the first game of the 1960 World Series... Between the New York Yankees and the Pittsburgh Pirates. It is a beautiful day in Pittsburgh. Sunny, blue skies, the temperature 60 degrees here, just prior to the start of Game 1 of the 1960 World Series.
1: The Yankees qualified for the World Series that year an astonishing 10th time in 12 years. Now, let's just set the scene here for just a second. The Pirates take Game 1, the Yankees take Game 2. Tied at one game apiece, the series goes back to New York to Yankee Stadium for game three in front of 70,000.
0: It is known, of course, as the house that Ruth Built, and it has become synonymous with a fall baseball classic.
1: And you come to the plate in the first inning with the bases loaded.
0: Richardson trying to get a hold of one to increase the Yankee lead. It's two to nothing New York. We're in the first.
1: And proceed to foul off two pitches.
0: So it's a full count on little Bobby Richardson, one of the smallest men in baseball but also one of the finest second basemen in the big leagues.
1: And then, Bobby, you do what every kid dreams of.
0: Bases loaded, one out. Here's the windup by Levine. 3-2 pitch to Richardson. A swing and a fly ball well hit left field. Way back, 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 back. Bobby here, a grand slam home run. Bobby Richardson just hit a grand slam home run into the lower deck and left field into the lower seats. Four more runs are in and the Yankees lead 6 to nothing
1: and he busts that
0: one. Richardson hit a 3-2 and two pitch, a fastball into the lower
1: seats in left field. Fast forward to the seventh game. The seventh and deciding game of the 1960 World Series was at Forbes Field, October 13, 1960. With the score tied at 9, Bill Mazeroski came to the plate. Sudden death now, last of the ninth. And launched a home run over the left field fence into Shenley Park.
0: Oh. There's a drive the deep lane.
2: when i looked at yogi i knew that he knew the ball was out of the ballpark and uh, i grabbed my hat because i knew the crowd would be on the field in no time and uh took a run for the clubhouse before i could get there where there were people coming there was so excitement for pittsburgh to win that series and before he could get around the bases they had mobbed him i'm not sure he ever touched home plate but that didn't matter and uh he hit the ball out of the park and that was a wonderful thrill for him I remember that when he hit the home run, the walk-off home run in the 60-carat series off Ralph Terry, that we went in the clubhouse as losers, and Mantle was actually crying. And uh, I remember that he was crying, and all of a sudden, the editor of Sport Magazine, Ed Fitzgerald, walked in, came over to me and said, I want you to know that you've been voted the most valuable player in the World Series. Well, number one, I didn't think, it, and nobody had before, could ever win from the losing team. and. I was thrilled to receive the award, but it was negated by the fact that we had lost the World Series. In the
1: 1960 World Series, you hit 367, scored eight runs, doubled twice, tripled twice, hit a grand slam in Game 3, drove in 12 runs, and along with the MVP trophy, you also won a Corvette, 1960 Corvette. 1960
2: Corvette, Corvette, and I picked it out the next day at a dealership in New York and had a friend up, and he drove it home for me. They had a big parade, even though we lost. The people of Sumter were thrilled. That was the first time that I had uh, done anything of any importance as far as baseball was concerned. They felt they had a big parade and down Main Street, and they had the Corvette in the parade. and uh, And I remember that we had a mayor at that time, it was kin to my wife, uh, first woman mayor in the South, and uh, she kissed me in front of the courthouse steps and there were a lot of folks that turned out for that occasion but I couldn't get my two boys in there it was a sports car of course a two-seater and I needed a station wagon because my family was growing, and I I traded that for a Jeep. I got me a Jeep, and I loved to hunt quail, hunt, and use that Jeep uh, for the, a long time after that.
1: I love, by the way, that uh, Pirates pitcher Roy Face, who had an amazing World Series in 1960. He did. He sent he you. Me. He said <laughs> he sent you a letter. He called you. What did he say?
2: He said you're still driving my Corvette.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I said I said you had a good series. I said I was more surprised than you were that you did get it.
1: <laughs> so 1961, the Yankees finished with 109 wins. You had a front row seat for Mantle and Maris chasing 61 that year.
2: Waiting to see
0: if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. Fastball hit, deep to right, the right, to be it. Way back there. Oh,
1: how Bobby, was that the best team ever?
2: I think it was. Now, I personally think 62 was just as good, but uh, we had the home runs in 61. Everybody on our team were pulling for Mantle to be the one to break Babe Ruth because he had grown up as a Yankee. Roger had been traded in. But when he couldn't, when Mantle couldn't play those last weeks of the season, our lead just went over to Roger. We did want him to break the record. And it didn't mean that much to him. He wanted to sit out. He didn't care about breaking the record. And uh, Ralph made him bat that last game. And he hit the one that was number 61. And he's glad now that he did. And what a wonderful competitor he was. He was the best in the league at breaking up the double play, a good football player. And he'd throw a rolling block into you that would knock you in left field. So I was tickled to death when he was traded to our ball club. I wouldn't have to worry about him running in to be at second base. In the
1: 1961 World Series, it's the New York Yankees and the Cincinnati Reds. The Yankees have a 2-1 lead going into game four.
0: We are here in Crosley Field, Cincinnati. For the fourth game in this 1961 World Series.
1: And the fourth inning, you're turning a double play, and Frank Robinson spikes catch you on the ankle.
0: Grounded a ball down to the shortstop. One out at second, the throw to first, the double play.
1: By the time you make it to the dugout, your shoe is beginning to pool with blood. Frank was like a linebacker.
2: Well, he got me twice, but now Frank was just a little faster than we thought he was. And on both occasions, I got a low throw, which meant I had to stay a little bit longer at the bag. But Frank was one of my buddies. He hired one of my players that I coached late on Tony Beasley was his name. And he went with Frank everywhere he went. A wonderful ball player that became a coach and is still in the big leagues. Had a battle with cancer, but he's doing all right now.
1: And just to wrap up that Frank Robinson collision, despite the five stitches.
2: Bobby Richardson,
0: the Yankee second baseman, sustained a slight cut on the outer edge of his foot from Robinson sliding in the second.
1: You stay in the game. And you even single in the fifth.
0: Ball is hit in the ground for a base hit in the center. Ford is just loping in the second. He's not running very hard. That's a base hit in the center.
1: And you actually got three hits in game four to give the Yankees the win and a 3-1 series lead. And of course, go on to win game five. And you've said out of all the World Series you played in, seven, by the way, that that was the one that meant the most to you. You hit three ninety-one in the 1961 World Series and your nine hits set a World Series record for a five-game series. One of my favorite Bobby Richardson stories happened in 1962 at Minnesota's Metropolitan Stadium. It's the top of the ninth. The Yankees are trailing the Twins seven to four. Bases are loaded with two outs and you're up. And before you make your way to the plate, Mantle stops you and says, hey, look, I don't feel very good. See if you can hit one out of the park. Do you remember what happened next? <laughs> oh, I do remember.
2: Of course I do. And I remember that uh, the count went out to 2-0 and 0 and I said, for the first time, I'm going to really try to hit a home run. And I hit the ball and went out of the park. And I came in, man was laughing. I said, why are you laughing? He said, I didn't think you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> But it was short-lived because they tied it up in the bottom of the ninth inning. We were the visiting team playing in Minnesota, and we lost it on a broken bat single by Rich Rollins in the 11th inning. So it was short-lived, but that was a great thrill, and uh, and that was uh, indeed uh, my second Grand Slam, yes.
1: Another cool moment in 62 after it was announced that Mickey Mantle won the MVP. Do you remember what he said?
2: I do, and it's probably my biggest thrill in baseball. For Mickey Mantle, we had 30 home runs, and every time he played, he missed a lot of games. But if you look at the records, if he played, we won. When he didn't play, we didn't win. And for Mickey Mantle to say, Bobby should have won it, that was my biggest thrill in baseball. But I just uh, say simply, no, when he played, we won. He was the one and should have been the one of the MVP in the American League.
1: What a cool moment. There's no way we can finish this interview without talking about the 1962 World Series between the San Francisco Giants and the New York Yankees.
0: This is Joe Garagiola along with George Kell welcoming you to the seventh game of the 1962 World Series. This is it. Forget the rest of the season. Forget the playoffs, the averages, what you did in this ballpark, that ballpark. It's all wrapped up today.
1: Game seven at Candlestick Park. Yankees are up 1-0, bottom of the ninth. Matty Alou reaches safely on a bunt single.
2: I knew he was bunting. I cheated in, and I came in. I honestly can say it was a perfect bunt. It was right between the pitcher, the first baseman, and I didn't have a chance to even feel that the pitcher beat me there. And so he was on first, and he was a good runner.
1: Ralph Terry then strikes out Felipe Alou and Chuck Hiller. And now the heart of the Giants' order is up. Mays, McCovey, and Cepeda. Mays lines a ball down the right field line. And Matty Alou sprints to third. But with the game this close, you know he was thinking about going home.
2: It a lot of rain. It was really wet in the outfield. And Roger, you could see him slip, but he may resulted in making a wonderful play. Turned, made the throw to me. And I, in turn, made the relay to home plate. And the third base coach stopped him at third base.
1: And people and, wonder, would Matty Alou have been safe? But I'd say, if you look at the video, I think had he run, he would have been out by five steps.
2: Well, the ball hopped up big, but I still think that he would have been out, and I think the third base coach felt the same way and made that decision. Now, I saw Willie Mays later. I was able to present the Gold Glove Award to the one of, later on. Joe Morgan couldn't come for some reason or another, and I was there. And Willie Mays came up to him and said, Richardson, come over here. I can't see you. Hold my hand so I don't know where you are. And I did. He said, I want you to know that if I had been on first base running, when I hit that ball, to right if he out would scored score and we'd have beat you guys. And I said, I know that you wouldn't have stopped. And uh, <laughs> I know that uh, you're probably exactly right. He felt like he was. And, and he wouldn't have stopped. He'd have scored.
1: So Matty, Lou's lose on third. Willie Mays is on second. With McCovey up, Yankees manager Ralph Houck makes his way to the mound to talk to Ralph Terry to kind of strategize what they're going to do. And I think you and Tony Kubek, who was the shortstop for the Yankees, met at second base with Willie Mays. And Tony, <laughs> you remember what Tony said to you? Well, he
2: and I roomed together, the miners and the major. And he said, I sure hope uh, McCovey hadn't hit the ball to you. I said, why? He said, well, you've already made an error in the series. I don't see you blow it right now. <laughs> and that's what I was thinking about when I went back to my position. And I got down, and it's really funny, but Ralph Terry took one step out towards me. And I sort of wondered why he was looking out, and he, he went back. He told me later he felt like I was playing out of position. He was going to ask me to move over. And as it turned out, I was right in the right place, and I caught the ball. The umpire at second base said, hey, Rich, can I have your cap for my cousin? I remember catching the ball and going down with my right hand, took the hat off and gave to the umpire. And the picture that actually in the New York Times. Had the umpire walking by with his hat in his hands. I was bareheaded, and I was giving the ball to Ralph Terry. Because he, who had two years early given up the home run to Mazeroski, was the MVP of the World Series.
1: That line drive that ended the game from McCovey looked like it was going to take your hands off.
0: Willie McCovey hit it like a bullet. A line drive right straight to Bobby Richardson at second base. Had that ball got out of his reach, the Giants would have been the winner. Now it's the Yankees who have
1: mobbed Ralph Terry in the center of the diamond, and well, they should. Was that one of the hardest line drives that was ever hit to you? You know, I didn't see McCovey for 45 years, and they
2: called and asked in new stadium if I would come out and, and he and I would throw the first ball out. And when I saw Willie for the first time that night, his remarks to me was, I bet your hand's still hurting. And I said, you hit it hard. He said, that's the hardest, one of the hardest balls I ever hit. when I saw metal hit balls like that. It would come down in a hurry with the overspin. A little topspin, it yeah. It looked like a sure base hit when it left the bat, but it came down in a hurry, and I just happened to be right there.
1: Bobby, you did something that was unheard of now, and I'm sure was unheard of then. In 1966, at the peak of your ability, you left baseball. You and your wife, Betsy, had four young kids at the time, and, and you made a decision you wanted to be with them more. Playing in your games meant missing too many of their games.
2: It's exactly right. In fact, it goes back a year earlier. Tony and I together made the decision in 65 that we were going to retire at the end of the 65 season. Sports Illustrated heard about it. They sent a photographer over and he took our picture and the two of us were to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated saying the shortstop second baseman combination of the Yankees both retiring to spend more time with their family at 29 years of age. What happened then, Ralph Howell moved up to general manager and they signed Bobby Mercer. And uh, he came up and he said, I know you're both retiring, but I want one of you, it doesn't matter which one, to play and break Bobby Mercer in. And we talked about it, and I said, well, I really want to retire. And Tony said, well, I'll do it. And as soon as he said that, one week later, he got a call, and he was called in the reserve program for a year. And so Ralph called me and asked me if I would uh, play, and I said, of course, I'll be glad to do it for that one year. And then the rest of the story is very simply that uh, he handed me a blank contract. He said, fill it in, anything you want, we'd be glad to do it. And I said, I probably surprised him. In fact, Dale Webb in Yogi Bear's new book is quoted as saying, we've never had anybody negotiate with us quite like that. I said, well, I didn't have too good a gear last year. How about the same salary as last year? And uh, Ralph said, that'll be fine. But then when he gave me the contract, it was for the same year, but it was a five-year contract. And four years after that, I'd have a chance to decide what I wanted to do. He would give me an amount of money that would uh, end up that I would be making even more money than Mickey Mantle that final year. I remember that uh, some year I did retire, became the baseball coach at the University of South Carolina. And because of that contract, I had to call the Yankees and get a release from them to be the coach at South Carolina. And when I went back, Lee McPhail was there, and he said, well, now, wait a minute. If you want to come back, you can be our major league coach, you can be our broadcaster, or you can be our AAA manager. And I said, no, the reason I'm getting out is the travel involved, the separation from family. He said, well, when you get settled down there, give us a call. We'll bring the Yankees down to play your ball club. Well, four years later to the day, I called. We had lost out to Miami in regional play, and I felt like we were ready to have them come. This was in 74. And he said, I got a little problem. And I thought that was a no. And he said, we're traveling north from spring training with the New York Mets. And I thought that was the reason. Then he said, would it be all right if both the Yankees and the Mets come and play your ball club? And Yogi was the manager of the Mets. And the two teams came down and just put our team on the mat. 15,000 people came out. And the next year, we finished second nation, the College World Series. And that night was a wonderful night because Yogi, I drove the bus out and picked the Mets team up. And he said, what are you doing driving the bus? I said, well, I want you to be safe. I didn't trust that motor pool guy. And he said, tell me what we're doing. And I told him, he said, well, y'all can't compete with us. I'm pitching writing practice every day. Let me pitch to your ball club. Your pitch is pitched to our club. i will even it up. I said, good idea. I'll just get on the PA system and announce the game. He did that, I did that, and we beat both the Yankees and the Mets because of his throwing the ball right in there. Wonderful night. That is so Whatever great. Dream come true.
1: An incredible career. 12 years in the Major League, second baseman for the Yankees from 55 to 66, selected to seven All-Star teams, played in seven World Series, three-time World Champion, World Series MVP, five-time Gold Glove winner. And by the way, the book, Impact Player, Leaving a Lasting Legacy on and Off the Field is a must-read. I encourage folks to pick that up at Amazon.com. Bobby Richardson, thank you so much for the time.
2: Thanks for your call. I enjoyed talking to you. Good memories. And I really enjoyed my life in baseball. And because of baseball, the Lord has given me unbelievable opportunities.
1: Again, one of those guys that I could talk to for an entire afternoon and just hear story after story. Someone who played with Mickey Mantle. Someone who played against so many of the legends of the game. Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. And when you think about how players today dream about one day playing in a world series he played in seven and won three by the way we have a link in the notes section of the podcast that'll take you to amazon.com if you want to check out his book he really has led an incredible life and one of the things that i've tried to focus on here in season three is trying to get more of those players on from the 50s and 60s just trying to do everything we can to preserve that part of baseball history hope you enjoyed it today Producers of the Lost Ballparks podcast are Mike Dunn, Michael Ortman, Xavier Guerra, Briggs Buckingham, and Maddie Zavlakis. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. Can't wait to share another episode with you next Wednesday on the Lost Ballparks podcast.